Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, June 13th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, an attorney arrested in Lexington, Mississippi, while filming a police traffic stop. Then a continued look at how the agriculture industry is adjusting to climate change. Plus, a new work requirement could take away food assistance for some Mississippians. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A lawyer who filed a federal civil rights lawsuit against a Mississippi police department arrested by that same force this weekend, attorney Jill Jefferson filed a lawsuit last year against the Lexington Police Department. It's on behalf of five residents who claim both police and city hall fostered a culture of harassment, targeting individuals and excessive force. The case has since gained national attention, with the U.S. Department of Justice visiting the city this month to speak with Jefferson and residents about racial profiling and police brutality. Saturday night, Jefferson herself was arrested while filming a traffic stop. Her attorney, Michael Carr, speaks with our Mike McEwen about her arrest. Ms. Jefferson had called me several weeks ago uh, concerned that the next time she went to Lexington, she would be arrested. And I advised, okay, well, if that does happen to you, please call me and I'll come to the scene. And that's exactly what happened. So she called me at 10 o'clock on this past Saturday, advising she was in her car. She was showing her ID to officers. She was on a public road. She was not interfering with the investigation at all. She was filming a traffic stop of a third party. um, And the officer, upon seeing that, approached her, uh, demanded her ID, which she showed, and then forcibly removed her from the car and arrested her. Uh, inventory searched her car, went through all her personal belongings as well as her vehicle and her trunk, and then uh, arrested her, handcuffed her, took her to the Lexington Police Department where he charged her with three charges, failure to comply, disorderly conduct, and resisting arrest. As of the time, I don't have any report, narrative, or supplemental narrative from the city of Lexington. And I don't know what basis upon which the 
city of Lexington uh, bases their charges. Initially, she was set a bond by the city of Lexington on these misdemeanor charges of $1,280 approximately. I talked to the chief of police, and after our conversation, he agreed to drop the bond amount and release her on her own recognizance. However, there was still a $35 booking fee uh, that was holding Ms. Jefferson at the jail, which is applied in all cases where the city uh, arrests someone and puts them in the home county jail. And she refused to pay that as well because she believed she was wrongfully arrested. Through negotiations with the sheriff, the chief of police, possibly others, uh, I was able to get the $35 booking fee waived or dropped. And Ms. Jefferson was then ultimately released. And if I haven't previously mentioned it, her court date is July 13th. And did she indicate it all to you, if you could speak to that, why she was worried about getting arrested if she went back to Lexington? No, uh, I didn't ask her. It was just a brief conversation. She had called me and advised that. I didn't go into any details. When I took the phone call, I said, okay, I'll handle it if that happens. And that's what I did. And in your experience, is it is it normal? Is it precedented for somebody who's recording, as you described it, I suppose a third-party traffic stop on a public road, uh, to be arrested and to be charged with these three misdemeanor counts? I know it does happen. It's wrong if it does happen not illegal in this state to film anything from a public area like Ms. Jefferson was. Um, I believe it incensed the officer that he was being recorded, and it's possible that because of that, he retaliated against Ms. Jefferson. Ms. Jefferson uh, and her uh, team have filed a civil suit against the city of Lexington uh, a while back, months ago, because of the alleged corrupt police practices of Lexington in uh, stopping individuals for seemingly no reason and charging them with various misdemeanor citations. And uh, Ms. Jefferson was fighting against those practices. And ultimately, while she was filming an incident where she was concerned about police corruption uh, and bribery and retaliation, she was ultimately arrested herself. And so now that she's been released, and she has this court date set uh, for about a month from now. What does that mean, I guess, going forward in her case? I suppose this court hearing will be determining if she'll be fully charged or not? So she has been fully charged, and the court date will be a trial. It will be determined whether she's guilty or not guilty on each of the three separate charges. The trial will be without a jury because it is city court, misdemeanor court, and the presiding judge uh, is an employee of the city of Lexington just like the charging officer. So um, we certainly have a concern about that. But uh, ultimately, we hope to receive our fair day in court that justice will prevail. I have sent a evidence preservation letter to the city of Lexington, as well as a uh, document demand letter, like I do in all my cases, where I've demanded a copy of the incident report, arresting documents such as charging affidavits for each of the three criminal charges that they have alleged against Ms. Jefferson. Um, I've also sent an evidence preservation letter demanding that all evidence be preserved uh, that they may have against Ms. Jefferson, including officer body camera, audio, 911 dispatch records, the other part of the investigative file, including witness interviews, etc. Now that she's been released and now the court date is set, the court date then would just be the next natural step in this process? 
That's great. Between now and then, um, I fully anticipate I will receive evidence from the city of Lexington, and uh, we'll see what it is they that they have and what they claim they don't have, and then uh, we'll take that evidence and take it to trial and go forward. Uh, you mentioned that you might have some concern that the presiding judge over her eventual court date is a city employee in the same capacity that the arresting officer is. Could you speak a little more about that concern? Like I said, that is the only concern is that because the city court judge is a city employee, same as the officer, um, they're both paid by the same legal entity. And, um, you know, that there's supposed to be an independence between the state and the judiciary. And so um, by the nature of this municipal court, and it's not solely Lexington, I mean, every city court in every city in the state is set up like this. And so um, I just want to ensure uh, that there is independent judgment here, and, and there very well may be, and I certainly hope that there is. But the reality of it is, is that, yes, this uh, city court judge is an employee of the city, and there's a current federal lawsuit filed by Ms. Jefferson against the city. That was attorney Michael Carr. He's representing Jill Jefferson, a lawyer arrested by police in Lexington Saturday. She filed a federal lawsuit last year alleging police brutality against the same department. Coming up, we learn about a project that's helping black farmers develop eco-friendly techniques. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The MPB Public Media app just got an update. It's now easier than ever to interact with your favorite MPB local shows and experts. With the brand new Talk To Us feature, you can engage with your favorite MPB local shows anytime, day or night, directly through the app. Simply select Talk To Us from the MPB Public Media app's menu. There, you can leave a question, share show ideas, or simply just say hello. With the new Talk To Us feature, you have access to your favorite MPB local shows and experts anytime you want to talk. Hi, I'm Richard Gershon, the host of In Legal Terms and a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. If you miss a live In Legal Terms episode, find our podcast, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Biden administration announced a once-in-a-generation investment of $20 billion toward climate-smart agriculture in February. In our story yesterday, we got an up-close look at how that eco-friendly farming works. In the second part of our series, the Gulf States Newsroom's Danny MacArthur reports on efforts to prioritize environmental justice. I'll give you like a layout of our farm. So we have our greenhouse over there. It's early in the rice growing season for Jubilee Justice Farm in Alexandria, Louisiana. And Miles Gaines is showing me around. This plot right here is a uh, acre and a third uh, where we do our more experimental hand scale stuff. We're walking through rows of what looks like grass in the greenhouse. And we'll be transplanting these over there. Um, Gaines is the head of innovation and experimentation here. Think of him as the rice expert. Del Mahdi, somewhat similar to Basmati. This is jasmine rice, and then this is HB1, which is my favorite. It's like this black, sticky rice. Jubilee Justice is testing a different system of rice growing. It uses less water while producing more rice and protecting the soil. 
The Black Farmers Rice Project teaches black farmers how to use that system and farm in more environmentally friendly ways. They work with several farmers across the South, which means they are learning what kind of rice will grow in a lot of different soil types. That matters because agriculture is one of the primary sources of greenhouse gases in the U.S. And Gaines says rice production plays a big role. Generally speaking, um, when you think of, I guess, rice production, it's usually like flooded fields comes to mind. And constantly flooded fields have anaerobic conditions, which produce methane. The Rice Project focuses on black farmers because there are fewer of them. And they tend to have fewer resources, like USDA loans. So Climate Smart is a... a fairly recent thing. Eugene Livingston is the state outreach coordinator for the Natural Resources Conservation Service in Louisiana. And it's now starting to move to the forefront. He says this new federal investment means that there's now billions of dollars available for conservation projects. And that's money that typically isn't available. For everything from experimental equipment to irrigation to farmers trying out new kinds of growing techniques. So we're looking to get as many new customers in the door as possible because we're going to have plenty of opportunities for them to receive funding. That includes finding ways to get federal money into the hands of underserved producers. Basically, people who don't normally get access to USDA funding for their farms. And at Jubilee Justice, this is work they're already doing. They're trying to find ways to waste less because underserved farms are already working with fewer resources. So the machines, they do all the work. This year, they're running their own solar-powered rice mill. Uh, we bring it in, and we start it off here in this bin here. Bernard Wynn is the uh, operations specialist. Takes it up this elevator to the first machine. This is the cleaner. The mill is cooperatively owned by black farmers, which will give each of them a bigger share of the profits from rice production. The rice will go down through here back up to this. This is the actual mill. He's been working here for eight months and says he takes a lot of pride in the work that Jubilee Justice is doing. It's a lot different from his last job at a buffet restaurant. So you can imagine the amount of food I was throwing away every day. And I was looking at the food going in the trash every day. I was telling the boss, I was like, hey, can I take some of this food? We have homeless people who are throwing away cases of chicken. Uh, no, 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 company this, company that. He started working at Jubilee Justice. Eventually, the contradiction between the two roles was too much. It was, it got to the point of, well, how am I trying to save the planet on one end in the day, and then at night, I'm throwing away pounds of food. So he let the restaurant get go. And that was, that was my shift. This constant push to come up with better, greener farming techniques has been eye-opening for him. And to see what's happening in the way that we can farm regeneratively um, without harming the, the community or the, or the soil or the earth, it's been a sight to see. This new rice mill is a way for Jubilee Justice to scale up. And they're aiming to take what they've learned trying to produce higher quality, higher yield crops while doing less damage to the environment and bring it to more farmers throughout the Gulf South. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Denny McArthur. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public radio stations in Louisiana and Alabama. Coming up, adjustments are being made to federal food assistance requirements. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
The MPB Public Media app just got an update. It's now easier than ever to interact with your favorite MPB local shows and experts. With the brand new Talk To Us feature, you can engage with your favorite MPB local shows anytime, day or night, directly through the app. Simply select Talk To Us from the MPB Public Media app's menu. There, you can leave a question, share show ideas, or simply just say hello. With the new Talk To Us feature, you have access to your favorite MPB local shows and experts anytime you want to talk. MPB Think Radio airs local programs every weekday morning at 9. It's your chance to learn about Southern cooking, home improvement projects, and more. MPB Think Radio, Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. As the nation's debt ceiling limit is adjusted, so are the rules to qualify for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, known as SNAP. People aged 50 to 54 will now be subject to work requirements to receive the benefits, which helps address food insecurity, helping folks pay for groceries. According to a new report from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, this would put almost 750,000 adults at risk of losing food assistance. 7,000 of them live in Mississippi. Our Will Stribling speaks with Ed Boland, director of SNAP State Strategies at the agency. For that group, they will need to do this reporting, need to find a job, need to find training. Um, If they're unemployed at the time, um, they'll need to find a job. And many of people in that age group um, sometimes find it hard to find a job or take longer to find a job because of their age. They might not be as an attractive a candidate as uh, somebody younger for a position. Um, But also for that age group, um, many of those individuals are beginning to face or surface health conditions um, that could make it harder to work, right? If they've been doing physical labor most of their life, um, they may have a bad back or find that much more difficult to be on their feet eight hours a day. They may be facing cognitive declines and other challenges at increasing rates as they get older. So that, that could be very hard for, for those folks who are subject to the time limit because of their, the, the increase in the age uh, limit. At the same time, the debt ceiling legislation exempted certain categories of people from the work reporting requirement. And this would be for anybody from age 18 to now 54. So it's folks that are currently subject to it and the older, the the newer folks who are um, newly subject to it. Uh, And those groups that are um, potentially exempt are people experiencing homelessness, uh, veterans, and individuals aging out of foster care up to the age of 24. You know, those are groups that Individuals often face real challenges in finding and keeping a job. The hope is that many of them will be properly identified by the state when they apply or they recertify um, for for SNAP, and the state will figure out that they're not uh, or should be exempt from the time limit and um, not impose the work reporting requirement on them. I think our concern is, and the concern that's raised in many communities is that it's sometimes hard to identify individuals who are homeless uh, or meet a certain definition of homelessness. It might be hard for them to prove it mm-hmm. to the SNAP agency. Similarly, young adults aging out of foster care may not have documentation or be able to know that they need to let the state SNAP agency know about their condition in order to be exempt. So a lot of that comes down to how well a, a state agency identifies these individuals. You imagine that's going to vary a lot state, state by state 
No. It could, yeah. I mean, we're not quite sure of like what the exact definition of homeless is. I mean, hopefully, veterans is pretty clear, um, but you know, states may do a good job of asking that information when people apply. They may screen them at an inter- interview, which is required for SNAP, but they can also sort of skim over that or ask a question in a way that somebody doesn't understand. And so it, it will very much vary state by state. As far as the new work requirements for 50 to 54, like what's the the rationale for just those? Like it's weird that it's just those four years. Like it's just yeah. a, a weird, a, just an odd selection. Do you do you have any like thoughts behind the, just the rationale there? No, because I don't think it's rational to impose this work requirement um, on anyone because we know that it doesn't help them get jobs. It just cuts them off a snap, and then they're you know have less of an ability to feed themselves and more barriers to getting work. So there's lots of studies that show when the time limit goes into effect, people just lose benefits. So why why it would be expanded to older um, unemployed workers is a mystery to me. And exactly why it would be 54, you know, go from 49 to 54. I, I don't I don't know what the rationale is. There have been proposals to raise it even higher. So my guess is they there was some negotiation and they we're thinking more of numbers than of people and just said 54 is a number we can live with real, you know, not necessarily thinking, Oh, a 54 year old is the right kind of person to subject to this kind of work reporting requirement. Ed Bolin is director of SNAP state strategies with the center on budget and policy priorities. He says it's often harder for people in the 50 to 54 age group to find a job. Emily Snell with the Mississippi poor people's campaign says it comes at a time of growing food insecurity. Groceries are pretty much at an all-time high right now. This population that it is affecting, like I understand that the improvement to be made for former fosters or the aged out um, people that are aging out of foster care, people experiencing homelessness and veterans would no longer have to um, provide work requirements. Which is great, but like this other population, age 50 to 54, that is harmful to them. So this is, in my opinion, will push them further into poverty. It's kind of unrealistic to ask um, them to provide work shift requirements. That is an age group that faces a lot of barriers if they're, you know, could be someone who's been doing physical labor their whole life and now they're experiencing health difficulties and have to find a new job or just like or any person that's in that age is going to have a harder time when companies are more interested in hiring someone younger that they can pay less. Point. And then also this create like, okay, now you have to ask your boss to sign this piece of paper and now it becomes worrisome and now you have to like put your pride to the side and say, hey, you know, um, now I'm in this group of people that are, are labeled with the stigma. Not only do I have to receive government benefits because I, I, I don't have a living wage, but now I need to make my employer aware of it. Now I need you to sign this piece of paper saying that I'm working. You know, so it further stigmatizes this population as well. The work that y'all do, have y'all and the people you are with, like, you speak just a bit about how, like, essential, uh, how much an essential part of the safety net that SNAP is? SNAP it is essential. So it basically just is passed. It's going to um, lead to increased further food insecurity, which also can have negative health consequences, particularly in the elderly. 
going to result in financial strain as families may have to choose between paying for other essentials like housing or health care or buying food, which I, don't, I mean, which all three are essential to living, you know, so now you're telling me I possibly have to choose. Emily Snell is with Mississippi's Poor People's Campaign. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.